I'm Alex Wong, and the Wong Takes start now. Hey, everybody. How, how's it hanging? This is the Wong Takes, and if you notice something different, it is because I got a microphone. Like, one of the actual microphones that people use for, like, actual video stuff with like the cable you plug into your computer and the little fuzzy thing on the microphone. I actually got it for a separate project, but hey, it's going to work for the long takes too. It is Tuesday, May 21st, 2019, and we here at the Wong, well, I here at the Wong Takes am very excited to bring this new technological development to you. By the way, if it sounds weird at all, let me know. I can always switch back. Um, and perhaps that'd be some good feedback, but I am glad to have this change here because it's been long in the making and long overdue and uh, with how long I've been doing this. And so I'm very excited to bring you the sports takes of the last week on a new, it's it's, it's a off-guild mic. I got it off of Amazon for like $12, but it has the clip-on thing and it looks pretty official. So, you know, I'm going to roll with it uh, for now. Anyway, uh, so that's what I've got going on over on this end, but let's see what the sports world has got going on. We're going to start out with the NBA playoffs, of course, uh, and mostly talk about one series, the Warriors and the Blazers. Uh, I, as a Warriors fan, was very happy with how the last series went down. And what did go down, the Warriors swept the Blazers in four games. Game one at Oracle... Ended 116-94. Game 2, 114-111. Game 3, Golden State won at the Moda Center, 110-99. And in Game 4, the Warriors won in overtime, 119-117. And before this series started, actually before the last series ended, Charles Barkley said after Kevin Durant went down in Game 5 with that right calf strain, which actually is going to end up being a little more serious than that, uh, that the Warriors can't win a series nonetheless, or can't win a game, this games, these games against the Rockets, nevertheless a whole series. And yet here come the Warriors and sweep the Blazers. Now the Blazers are obviously dealing with some issues of their own. I mean, not having Yusuf Nurkic down in the post uh, was a big presence that they missed in the series, but nevertheless, the Warriors not having one of the best players, if not the best player in the league, all-around-wise, uh, was a devastating blow, but they did what they had to do to win. And I think the biggest difference that the Warriors uh, came out with without Kevin Durant, there's lots of talk about how their style of play changes, and it does, and we might get into that a little bit later. But I think ultimately the biggest thing that helped propel the Warriors to this win was their starters playing phenomenal basketball. Because when Durant was there in the first like series and a half, Draymond wasn't playing super well. Steph was having a horrific playoff postseason, not shooting well from three, not making some like basic layups. But once you get that nucleus back into play, that's when the Warriors can really take off. So Steph Curry, uh, game 1, 36 points. Game 2, 37 points. Game 3, 36 points. Game 4, 37 points. Averaging 36.5 points per game quite uh, consistently. 
And what Steph has done, the reason that he's been able to score that much is, one, he's shooting a lot better from three. He's not shooting 25% anymore. But also, running the point again provides him more opportunities to score uh, because he dictates how the, what style of play is run. And so when he gives it up to Draymond, Draymond knows Steph's going to run around a bunch of times and try to find a free spot in the defense. And that gives Steph a lot more open looks because of that off-ball movement and knowing that he's looking for a shot um, and that someone, whoever has the ball is not going to shoot it. It's probably going to pass back to him. Um, and I think that's a big boost to Steph's confidence, but also just him getting shots up um, and making them because he's had a lot more open looks than what he had in the first couple of series. Draymond Green, meanwhile, is the story that everyone's been talking about over the last couple of days. He had a triple-double in games three and four. Um, but I think the biggest, well, that was the biggest contribution for him. But also the energy he brought throughout the series, because when the Warriors struggle in the, po in the regular season, people worry because that's what they're built to do. Everyone's a worry wart. But the common rebuttal to that is the Warriors can flip the switch. And everyone starts to go, and the Warriors are getting in a real funk. Well, when are they going to flip the switch and go into playoff mode? And or, or what does that even entail? Because, you know, you can't just flip a switch and your shooting is all of a sudden better. Or that can happen, but it's not as a result of your control. I mean, what can they control that would allow them to flip the metaphorical switch? And Draymond's energy is that answer. Uh, watching the highlights, watching him, as soon as it's a made basket or whatever, watching him drive the ball up the floor. I mean, he's really a master of the offense when he's rolling. Because not only does he have energy, but he is... Uh, focused. He's really focused right now. There was a quote earlier from the week where he said, uh, I'm paraphrasing, but in previously I used to whine to the refs more than I would play, and it must have been disgusting to watch. Disgusting being his word. And it's true. I mean, people don't tune into the NBA to watch the players complain about the refs. Just look at the Rocket series and all the backlash that Houston's gotten uh, over the last week or so. And Draymond being that laser-focused player, that all-star uh, that became one of the, the largest faces of this dynasty, has really brought the Warriors to another level. I mean, he can run the offense anywhere, really. Uh, on the fast break, obviously, that's where the Warriors made their name with the deadly fast break being both fun to watch in that when he runs it well, it's beautiful and also dangerous to the opponent because uh, they score like 95% of the time, and like half of them are threes. But also, off-made baskets. Draymond, as soon as the basket is made, catches the ball off the inbound, because they inbound it really quickly, and then just drives the ball up the floor and creates mismatches uh, in the defense that can be exploited, uh, like big on smaller, vice versa. And the other team can't get settled that way. And also in the pick and roll, of course, with Steph Curry. What Steph does a really good job of is any player can run a pick and roll. But what Steph does is he's mastered the timing to the point when where both players double him, because they don't want him to shoot, obviously. He backs them up, backs them up, till he's at like the timeline, and then dumps the ball off to Draymond right before the help defender can get to Draymond. There was one time when he ran it perfectly, and the help defender ended up having to lunge at Draymond, essentially then creating a four-on-two, because uh, you had two guys doubling on Steph. And then you had the guy out of the picture because he lunged, and then Draymond and the three other players uh, running the offense. And then Draymond ended up 
scoring that possession with the layup. That's the type of game that Draymond, when he's on, runs perfectly 85% of the time. And I think that's what he really brought to the table in this Portland series and what ended up really making the difference. I mean, when he's on like that, plus hitting some threes, I mean, he hit a couple of threes in Game 4, uh, the Warriors are very, very difficult to stop. And another interesting aspect to this series was the comebacks. The Warriors were down 17 in Game 2, 18 in Game 3, and 17 in Game 4, and they came back to win all three games. And this is kind of reminiscent of the Warriors of old. I mean, and even with Durant, too. They never feel out of a game. Even when they're down 25, they never feel out of the game. And in this case, down big double digits all three times. Um, and... I think what the difference is without Kevin Durant, how the Warriors were able to come back each time, is that typically when the Warriors are on the wrong end of a scoring run, what they do is they turn to Kevin, and they dump the ball off to him in at the elbow or in the high post, and just let him work on a smaller defender for a little bit and hit a little ISO jumper. And that works pretty well majority of the time, um, and that's why they turn so often to it. But without Durant, I think the difference is, instead of having that player that can consistently get you those points, what they have to do is, before they can actually score in bunches, they have to really develop a rhythm. Because they can't rely on just Durant getting hot to salvage the game for them. They have to actually get the offense flowing to the point where um, it's an offense that can score every time, like with Curry and Draymond and everything else. And so I think each of the three games, you could sense when the Warriors were coming back because it wasn't just like little jumpers here and there slowly climbing them back. It was like 12-3, 10-0, runs, right? And you know that that's the Warriors that everyone came to know and love in 2015-2016 you know, where they can make these insane runs once their offense gets flowing. I think Portland also helped facilitate these comebacks a little bit, mostly because Portland isn't, especially without Nurkic, Portland isn't necessarily a team that wants to slow things down. I mean, they're built around C.J. McCollum and Damian Lillard, who are both shooters and who both want to get the ball up. And so them taking, you know, 30-foot jump shots uh, on the other end while the Warriors are starting to make a comeback, if they get cold for a little while, the Warriors can go on a quick 10-0 run. Um, and I think that was part of all that also, because some, some of the Blazers shot decision-making was questionable at best and wasteful at worst. And so Golden State, while Golden State was performing in the clutch, the Blazers are doing the opposite. Well, speaking of the Warriors, uh, I just wanted to point out the stat. In Game 4, Steph Curry had 37 points, 13 rebounds, 11 assists, and Draymond had 18 points, 14 rebounds, and 11 assists. Two triple-doubles from teammates in the same game, uh, which I just thought, in a closeout game. Also, about that, one more thing about the closeout game. Steph played 47 minutes, and Clay played 46 minutes. That demonstrates to you the sense of urgency that the Warriors felt uh, that they needed to have in this game, because they didn't want to extend the series. They wanted the rest. They wanted to go back and be done with it. Um, and maybe if a team had less urgency or didn't understand the situation as well, they would have taken Steph and Clay out when they were down 18 and said, okay, or 17 and said, okay, we're going to rest you guys for game five because we know we have that at home. Uh, we're going to have the Oracle crowd on our side, and it's going to be a crazy place, and it's going to be 
uh, it should be an easy win. But the Warriors know better, especially after the Clippers series, uh, where they lost Game 5 at home and had to go and win a tough Game 6 on the road uh, in Staples Center in L.A. And so the Warriors, knowing that and keeping the players in, really demonstrated what they felt about this game. But anyway, for some reason, teams just go cold in the clutch against Golden State. I mean, the Rockets obviously choked away Game 6, um, but Portland, they they would get these large leads, and then the Warriors would come back in like the late third, early fourth quarter, and the Blazers would have like eight minutes of crunch time, and they would do poorly. Uh, I think the most worrisome thing if you're a Blazers fan, um, although you know you have some time to stew over it over the offseason, of course, but... The offensive sets they were running in the clutch weren't even good sets. I mean, they were little ISO plays with, you know, uh, Damian or, or CJ running out, and they would just swing the ball around the three-point arc and hook up a 25-foot shot uh, that was well-contested. Like, just take a look at the last shot of Game 4, I mean, as a case in point. But the they didn't even get good-looking shots, or they didn't get any clean looks. And I think if you want to play well in the clutch against Golden State, you have to get those looks because you're going to miss some, but you're going to make more of them than if you didn't get those looks. I mean, CJ McCollum in particular had a terrible time in the clutch. Uh, in game three it was, I think, he missed like four out of five free throws uh, that could have possibly helped them keep the game tied. Um, instead, it ended up being with, ended up with Golden State having all the momentum and able going being able to win that game after being down 18. But I think if if the Blazers and I've said this before and I still think it's true if the Blazers want to you know seriously contend for a title, uh, they need another star for the clutch. They need a, a Paul George type or Kawhi Leonard type to to help them out because they're a small market team and they might struggle picking up that big-name star. I mean, they're not the Knicks or anything. Um, but I think if they could get even... I mean, even like a like the fifth-best player on your team. Like, I mean, just look what Myers Leonard was able to do for them. He was able to keep, really keep them in the game, score 30-whatever points. If you can get that, maybe not 30 points, but, you know, 15, 16 points on a consistent basis and a player who's comfortable taking shots when there's not much time left on the clock, that's what they need uh, to contend for a title. Because the Blazers overperformed a little bit this year. Um, and if they want to be able to make it back, uh, there's going to be have, some, have to be some pretty drastic changes. And with that, if that means C.J. McCollum has to go, so be it. But it, it could end up being like a DeMar DeRozan Raptors situation. Now, obviously, we don't know what's going to happen with the Raptors this year, but we can already see that they're performing better both quantitatively and qualitatively uh, from years prior. Uh, another interesting storyline from this series was Steph Curry versus Seth Curry with both of their parents watching in the stands, nervous, uh, alternating jerseys. That's going to be a, a fun story for years to come, because Seth versus Steph has, has, been, a, has been a good time, uh, and has been on the front page news a couple of times, but never in a game of this magnitude. And Seth really, I think, showed his mettle a little bit. I mean, even though Steph was obviously the better player, because he is the better player, he's the best shooter in the world, uh, but Seth was able to you know hit some threes over Steph, get a couple of steals, um, and play good defense, and that's kind of his mo as a player. And I, I think if Seth can keep that up, I mean, they'll they'll see each other many more times, and possibly in situations like this, regardless of what happens to both of their teams, or if Seth gets traded or whatever. And so I very much look forward to seeing that matchup in the future.
Meanwhile, this will be now the fifth straight NBA Finals appearance uh, for Golden State. And I think part of that goes uh, underappreciated to some extent. Because keep in mind how long the NBA playoffs is. And when the NBA playoffs are that long, that means you have to play two extra months of basketball for each deep playoff run. And that's not nothing. I mean, April to June is a long time. And you're talking what, like, uh, well, at the very least 16 games, but probably somewhere around 24, 25 games. Um, and that is, that is mentally and physically exhausting. And to have to come back to training camp uh, in only like, or I don't know, whatever the basketball equivalent of that is, in only two or three months um, is mentally, I think mentally is, and, and both, well, also like wear, wear and tear and things, but it's just exhausting for players, um, and also for the coaching staff. And so the Warriors getting to five straight finals, and it all, that all that type of thing also really puts LeBron's eight straight finals into perspective. The kind of uh, and him not having too many injuries puts into perspective the kind of uh, strength that his body is able to endure. But the Warriors is a run that we may never see again, uh, at least in this style. And I think it's something that we all should cherish, even if it's maybe quote unquote boring that the Warriors are. are quote-unquote, uh, dominating the league. As far as potential uh, finals matchups, I think the Warriors match up better with the Raptors than the Bucks because with the Raptors, and, and it's shown in the Eastern Conference semifinals, or finals, the biggest threat by far on that team, particularly come playoff, particularly come playoff time, uh, is Kawhi Leonard. And... The Warriors have a counter to that. They have Klay Thompson, who is one of the best defenders uh, in the NBA, particularly on fast guys. And so I think putting Klay Thompson on Kawhi Leonard and then allowing everyone else to match up normally uh, is, is, is a very suitable matchup for Golden State and will really allow them to prevent the Raptors from running their offense. I think if you face the Bucks, first of all, there's always the matchup problem of Giannis, who... Has gotten to the point with his game where basically you just have to hope he doesn't play well, and he didn't play well in Game Three. Um, but you have to basically hope. Uh, and I, I don't know if the Warriors have a good, consistent answer to that. And so, as a Warriors fan, I would rather have them see them play the Raptors than Milwaukee. Uh, but right now, it looks like Milwaukee's going to win that series, at least so it appears. I'm not going to call it too early, but. Uh, yeah, that's the situation for Golden State, and that's what I think uh, they ought to hope for. Topic number two, going to briefly talk about the NBA draft lottery, uh, which was held last Tuesday, one day after the, uh, the long takes for that week came out. And what ended up happening was the New Orleans Pelicans won the lottery. And so they will have the number one overall pick. Second is Memphis, third is Knicks, fourth is the Lakers, and then Cleveland, Phoenix, Chicago, Atlanta, Washington, uh, Dallas, who gave their pick to Atlanta, Minnesota, Charlotte, Miami, and then Boston, uh, who got their pick from Sacramento via Philly. So New Orleans getting the number one pick probably means that they will be picking Zion Williamson, the forward out of Duke that has garnered so much media attention, including at the draft lottery. 
Now, Xion is a good fit with virtually any system. Because if you're a team that's built around the three-point arc, he provides that uh, inside power that you might be missing. Um, and that way, you always have a threat inside, a, a physically imposing threat inside, to suck in the defense. Um, and if you're a team that's built around the inside, well, then there you go. He's your guy. And the Pelicans are kind of in a middling phase right now. They're not really sure about their identity. And especially if Anthony Davis were to leave, then their starting lineup would kind of be Alfred Payton, Ian Clark, Jalil Okafor, Christian Wood, and Kenrich Williams. So this isn't a team with superstars. And if Anthony Davis is to leave, that would be especially so. I think Anthony Davis is going to leave anyway. I think there's too many bridges that have been burned uh, over in New Orleans. that I don't think he's going to come back um, and play for them again. But, I mean, this Zion thing might change a lot, uh, particularly if they actually do pick him. And I'm curious to see what New Orleans is, or what Anthony Davis is going to do. Um, but I think Zion would be a fit in New Orleans, and they wouldn't be elevated to... Uh, top four level, but I think they would get in the playoffs with Zion. I think he's too talented. Now, there are a couple of things with Zion. One is that a lot of his game is built around his physicality and his ability to out-physical opposing players. And in high school and college, uh, he was able to do that with ease. But in the NBA, uh, obviously he's going to get bigger and stronger. But uh, the, the, the adjustment for rookies of this nature and stature is the style of play, right? You're going to have to adjust your style of play a little bit because you can't rely on your energy and being able to bully ball opponents. You have to finesse, adjust, make, you know, elbow jumpers, etc. And I think that'll be part of his game that's going to have to adjust quite a bit uh, when he gets to the NBA. Also is the, develop, the continued development of his outside shot. You can make it in the NBA without having a shot, the ex obvious example being Ben Simmons. But you can't become a transcendent superstar like Zion perhaps wants to be without a consistent three-point shot. And at Duke, he could hit it. And every time he did hit it, all the analysts were like, uh-oh, he's unstoppable now. But the, the reality is, one, he wasn't a 40% three-point shooter. But second he didn't take as many. And part of that is because he had better shooters on his team. I mean, R.J. Barrett and Cam Reddish, of course. But if he... And he's, he is okay if he defers while he's in the NBA, but he still needs to get those shots up. And so I think part of his development early on is, is going to be running sets to try to get him open to shoot threes. Because uh, without that, his game will still be just restricted to the inside, and even if his floor is high, his ceiling will be relatively low as well um, if, he's, he's, if he's unable to complete that extra step uh, in his game. So the draft lottery is done, and we will see what happens in the actual draft itself in June. Quick take. Got a little something interesting today. This is by Joseph Zucker, Bleacher Report. Mike Budenholzer rips Drake for sideline antics during Bucks versus Raptors series. So, if you're unaware, Drake, the rapper, singer, whatever his titles are, is the 
kind of unofficial mascot of the Raptors. At every, or at virtually every big home game, you can see him parading the sideline, saying hi to players, doing virtually everything, including many things most fans don't have access to. And in these Eastern Conference Finals, he's been just as adamant about it as ever, uh, yelling at Giannis and uh, briefly rubbing Nick Co- Raptors coach Nick Nurse's shoulders. And Mike Budenholzer, the Bucks coach, is tired of it and doesn't think he should have the access he does. Now, I'm at the risk of sounding like a party pooper. I'm kind of like, I'm kind of with coach on this one. Uh, I think some what Drake is able to do is not necessarily harmful, but it's kind of a bad precedent if you let people with big names get on the court just because they have big names. I don't think you need to make take major action. Uh, I don't think this is a pressing issue with Drake in particular. But I think it would be good to set a precedent to say, look, guys, we're not going to l- let this happen all the time. Maybe just hitting him with a light fine or banning him from a game or two that isn't a, a big game or just flat out the security going to him and telling him, look, we don't want you doing this. Is that okay? And I'm sure he'd be willing to oblige uh, at the risk of losing some of his fandom, I guess. So. I mean, this is really the only team that Drake is super passionate about, um, and it's exciting to see that. But, yeah, I agree with Coach. I mean, I think he's going just a, just a little bit uh, too far. Off topic today, as many of you know, a couple of shows ended recently, TV shows. Now, the most popular one is... Game of Thrones, but I don't watch that show, and this is my podcast, so I'm not going to talk about it. What I am going to talk about is the show that ended its 12-year run last Thursday, raking in 18 million viewers, The Big Bang Theory, the most popular comedy on TV for a decade. And there's a lot of criticism uh, of the show and the way it's unfolded, well, really ever since it started out. And I want to examine a little bit of those criticisms. I think I would say that the the primary uh, criticism that I hear about the Big Bang Theory is that it's not an accurate representation of geek culture. And that it's, uh, I guess, making fun of geeks. And I would disagree with that for two reasons. One, if you take a look at where the Big Bang Theory started 10, 12 years ago. There was no MCU. There was no, I don't know, the, the whole idea of superheroes and everything just wasn't in the public conscience as much as it is now. And by the way, a lot of these arguments I'm, I'm kind of taking from this Vox article uh, about the Big Bang Theory, kind of a requiem type thing. But the, the thing with the Big Bang Theory, second, the Big Bang Theory was never meant to be, to use geeks as the primary joke, right? The main uh, storylines of the Big Bang Theory are not them being able to meet superheroes or being able to, I don't know, finally tap into their geekiness, right? That's not the, the, the overarching character arcs. What are the overarching character arcs? Relationships, love, friendship. These are really standard sitcom troops uh, that the Big Bang Theory utilizes. And ultimately, geek culture is just the background for a lot of these jokes. 
just like any successful show. I mean, The Office, right? No one complained that The Office wasn't an accurate representation of an office because the main plot points, or at least the storylines that people identified with the most, weren't about an office. It was using The Office as an ambiance or a setup for these jokes, stories about relationships and, and love and, uh, and such. And so I think that's, a, that's why one of the main criticisms, uh, if not, uh, or is not per se, per se invalid, but not the, or kind of missing the point a little bit. Also, the Big Bang Theory using a laugh track is probably one of the other main things people say, but it is a live studio audience. I mean, the, the, uh, the laughter may be recorded in a certain way and edited in a certain way that makes it sound more booming than it already is. But nevertheless, it is a laugh track, or sorry, it is a live studio audience. And I think one of the funny things people do with the Big Bang Theory is they take out the laugh track and say, this is what the Big Bang Theory would sound like if with a, without a laugh track. And then it's, it's clearly not as funny. Um, and then people use that to disparage the show. But I think you have to keep in mind, I mean, these actors are there with a live studio audience. They, they understand that there's a certain rhythm to a show with a live studio audience compared to a single camera show like, uh, you know, The Office or Parks and Rec, where everything can move a lot faster. With The Big Bang Theory, the, the jokes are written in a way where you have these punchlines with some time waited after for the audience to laugh, right? It's, it's, it's harder to riff off a bunch of jokes in a row. And that's not an indictment on the show. That's just different styles of comedy. And I think removing the laugh track is akin to taking a quote out of context, right? You're, you're, you're providing ostensibly the same material, but it's presented without the information that makes it so valuable. Um, and I think that's why that the Big Bang Theory and the laugh track argument in particular are really not as valid. Um, so, I, I like the finale of the show. I think it, it could have been a little more um, ambitious, but, you know, I'm not going to complain. I mean, ultimately, it's a multi-camera, laugh track, traditional sitcom in an apartment. I mean, the show, conceptually, is about as conservative as you'll see on TV today uh, in the era of these shows like, you know, Veep and Atlanta and such. This is a really, really conservative show, uh, stylistically. And I think it's it, it's about time it goes. I mean, I would have liked to see some more storylines, probably because then I would turn 18 and I'd be able to watch it, watch a live taping, which I haven't been able to do, unfortunately. But I'm not sad, or I am sad, but I'm not heartbroken that it's ending just because, you know, it, it, it's had its time. It's not as funny as it used to be, that's for sure. I mean, the golden age was seasons like two through five, six maybe. But... You fall in love with these characters, you fall in love with the storylines, um, and I'll definitely miss that uh, as the show comes to an end. Thank you so much for listening to The Wong Takes. Check out everything bit.ly slash thewongtakes, patreon.com slash thewongtakes, thewongtakes, at gmail.com, rate and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and Google Play, and questions and voicemails. Thank you so much for listening, as always, and I will see you next week.